0: Hi, and welcome to episode 98 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and today I'm bringing you my conversation with Wayne Tunnicliffe. Wayne's head curator of Australian art at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, and we're talking about the life of Arthur Streeton, ahead of an outstanding retrospective of this Australian Impressionist artist, which Wayne curated. It's called Streeton and it opens on the 7th of November and tickets are available online now. The idea for this show came about when Wayne was curatorial advisor to an exhibition at the National Gallery of London of Australian Impressionists a few years ago. And it was clear to him then that Streeton stood out as the most significant landscape painter in that group. It makes perfect sense that this amazing retrospective is held at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Not only does the gallery have the largest collection of Streetons anywhere in the world, but they in fact started buying his work when he was just an emerging artist at 23 years of age in 1890. There's over 150 works in the exhibition, with some not seen in a public exhibition for over 100 years, and you can see all the works we talk about on the website talkingwithpainters.com. Streeton was born in 1867, when Australia was not yet a federation, there were no motor cars or aeroplanes, and the word Impressionism had not even been invented.
1: Yes, it's a really interesting point. Australia was separate colonies at that point when Streeton was born. He was born in regional Victoria, so not only was he in a remote colony, remote from the sort of Western art centres at least, he was remote within that colony. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and he came from a modest background, and his father was a school teacher before he became a clerk in the Education Department in Melbourne. So Streeton seems to have been driven from an early age to draw and make art, I I mean, he's just one of those people where that was innate. It was part of him from very early on. So as soon as he could, he started to learn more. But from the age of 13, he had to work to support himself because the family were not wealthy at all. I mean, they were only barely middle class. So he was out working as a clerk in various warehouses on the waterfront from the age of 13. And he enrolled in evening drawing classes at the National Gallery of Victoria School of Design. It was the only way he could access an art education. The painting classes were held during the day when he was working. So, yeah. so he starts, he has this drive to learn and to learn, more and he may initially have thought of drawing as leading to another career in making illustrations for the papers or working in industrial design, but he became passionate about it quite clearly. Uh, and he took himself out on the weekends to paint outside to draw outside and sketch outside and he's drawing sketching and watercolors as well and seems to have picked up oils in the mid1880s and after that he meets an important group of young artists that really help him learn and carry further on with his career so and Frederick McCubbin seems to be in the earliest contact and the most important he became drawing master at the school in 1886 and And he seems to have been a catalyst for Street and really moving forward with his practice.
0: Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And the other interesting thing about that time was that People have probably heard of this, of artist camps at the time. Can yes. you tell me a bit about that? I mean, Heidelberg is probably the most well-known, but there are other ones as well. Yes,
1: absolutely. And I think it's a really interesting point. And I think to pick on something you said before as well about not having cars and not having communication systems like we have now, I mean, I think what's particularly interesting in the 1880s, there had been quite a large group of migrant artists arriving in Melbourne in the late 1870s and early 1880s because Melbourne is booming It's been, and well, it still is one of the richest cities in the world on the back of the gold discoveries in regional Victoria. So there is money and there's a sense of opportunity. So there are artists migrating to Australia, bringing ideas with them at that time as well, which really feed into the Melbourne art scene. And of course, the other thing about the 1880s is the first phase of global communications. I mean, they are delayed global communications, but illustrated newspapers and art magazines and books are travelling the world. It might take three months or six months to get to Melbourne, but artists are connected through this material with what's happening overseas as well. And it's through these artist arrivals through illustrated newspapers and through magazines that they hear of Impressionism internationally. Um, Plus artists such as Tom Roberts, who have studied in London in the early 1880s and come back in 1885, I think he comes back, he's been at the Royal Academy schools in London, so he knows what's happening in the British art scene and is hearing about what's happening in France and America as well. And of course, one of the things which is happening are the artist camps or the artist colonies, which have become... Such a thing in France, in England and America where artists leave the cities, particularly in the summer months, travel out into the landscape and they paint en plein air in front of the subject. And this becomes a global movement in the 1870s and 1880s. Uh,
0: that's interesting. I didn't realise it was a global thing. And so so what would Streeton's first experiences of those artist camps have been and who would have been there?
1: Yes, well, Streeton, he was taking himself out into the landscape to draw and sketch. And I think in, in the 1880s in Melbourne, it's seen as a healthy outdoor activity. I mean, there, there's clubs for naturalists, which are not naturists. They're not going out with the clothes off, but they're going out <laughs> to nature, to paint and draw, to study nature as well. It's seen as being something which is good. Good for you, um, and this move to sort of be in nature and draw nature in front of it becomes very important. In Melbourne, the earliest artist camps, of course, are at Box Hill, which um, Tom Roberts and Frederick McCubbin and Louis Abraham set up and invite Streeton to join them in the mid-1880s the same trio have also been down at Mentone or Bomaris on the coast outside Melbourne and that's around where Tom Roberts first meets Streeton and Streeton's taking himself out to paint along the coast as well
0: Hmm. well Roberts Roberts was 10 years older than him and so was McCubbin more or less weren't they
1: so yes
0: they he must have been pretty much like a, a mentor was he
1: They were mentors to Street, undoubtedly. He's a young, locally born artist who's who's, you know, driven to paint. I I think he was charming, he's engaged, he wants to learn. And who doesn't like having someone around who's enthusiastic and wants to learn? So (laughs) I think he fitted in quite naturally with them. Um, And and they mentored him, undoubtedly. I mean, Tom Roberts was a leader, but McCubbin has been establishing a very firm reputation for himself as well. And McCubbin gets a little bit left out of the story when really he shouldn't be. I think McCubbin was probably the first, biggest influence on street, and, and then Tom Roberts soon after.
0: Oh, that's interesting you mean in the in respect of his technique in a way or? yes
1: certainly in drawing so uh McCubbin becomes Streeton's drawing master 1886 and Streeton's drawing improves dramatically under McCubbin but I'm pretty sure without being able to prove it that McCubbin would have encouraged Streeton in oil painting and actually have shown him the basic techniques during that time as well I mean Streeton seems to have been Pushing himself to paint in oils anyway, but that finesse I'm sure probably came from McCubbin and then through the close developing friendship with Roberts, Abrahams, etc.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. Can we jump to Heidelberg now, because yes, of course. That, that's the the next camp, but probably the most well known camp, and and that was one that Arthur Streeton founded himself. Yes, can you, can you tell me the story of how that happened?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I mean, it is fascinating. Streeton is still incredibly young at the stage in eighteen eighty eight. I mean. Goodness, my maths isn't the best, but 2021, <laughs> yeah. so very early on. Um, he goes out to Temple Stowe to paint because uh, Bouvelot has been a hero to these younger artists. Bouvelot is painting outdoors in the late 1870s, he's painting in quite a developed Barbizon school. Method, and the younger artists admire him. So he becomes a figure for them. And of course, Templestowe is one of the key places he paints. Street goes out to retrace Bouvlo's footsteps. He's coming back, and he runs into a friend of a friend outside Heidelberg, who happens to have bought uh, an estate there which is uh, for development. The development's not going ahead. Um, and he says, here's a homestead. It's empty. There's gardens and grounds. Why don't you work here? So Streeton takes artistic possession of this homestead from that point in time. Yeah. So it's re- just a remarkable coincidence, really. Um, and it's, it's a big, rambling old house. There's rambling abandoned gardens. It's in this location with beautiful views. You can get there by train and walking, etc. And he goes there and his friends join him. And they, they paint, they write, they talk, they sing, they dance, they party into the evenings. I mean, it seems pretty idyllic.
0: It sure does, doesn't it? And from the things that, you know, Streeton was writing in letters, it sounds like he was living this free time of his life, you know. Yes. 21, no cares in the world and just painting. Yeah.
1: Just painting. And I, and I think he's also achieved some success by this point already. So his works are being reviewed. The reviews are mixed. Some reviewers love them. Some are a little bit critical of his sort of loose brushwork and lack of finish, which, of course, are traits of Impressionism. Uh, but he's selling enough, and he's won awards, so he can actually take up painting full-time. So this coincides with having the homestead at Heidelberg available. So it is this extraordinary moment where he can devote himself to his practice with the camaraderie of like-minded friends. Yeah,
0: exactly. And then the two that are mostly sort of referred to in that time, are Roberts and Charles Condor.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. So Condor's out there with Street and a lot and Tom Roberts joins when he can, but then other artists and friends come out on the weekends as well. So Mm. it's this evolving household, bohemian household in a sense, but they get a lot of work done as well. So that's the great thing, (laughs) I think. I think during the weeks is probably work time, and the weekends yeah. was more for other things as well. Well,
0: I think we think these days 21 is really young, but actually, probably in those yeah, days, he was yeah. working from the time he was 13. Yes, yeah. So, absolutely. I mean, 21 probably was you sort of well into your adulthood by then.
1: Well into your adulthood, and life expectancies are shorter as well. So, yeah, and, that's and, you right. know, he's, he's out there working away, um, building on the reputation he's established. And really finding his voice at Heidelberg. So Mm. towards the end of Box Hill, he's working in a brighter palette. He's finding his own particular vision of the landscape and working in the blue and gold already that he became famous for. But Heidelberg really cements that.
0: Yeah, well, talking about the blue and gold, can we talk about one of his most famous paintings, which is in the collection of the National Gallery of Australia, and which will no doubt be in this show. Um, And it's called Golden Summer Eaglemont. And it's a very famous work. And, and on two occasions that it's been sold, it, is, it has achieved the record price for an Australian work at the time. And I'll just describe the painting for those people who can't get to the, the screen, their screen at the moment. They might be walking the dog or something. Um, it's, it's a view of the land at a time of drought, looking out from the homestead, I think, to the Dandenong Ranges, undulating plains and with a dry and golden land with a blue sky. Can you tell me why it is such a prized
1: work? Yes, it is in the exhibition, absolutely is in the exhibition, and, of course, it is a key work. And I think there's two things there, two reasons why it's become such, you know, it's an overused word, but I think we can say an icon of Australian art with this painting. I think both for the the content and how it's painted, but also choosing the best title in the world. I mean, who's not going (laughs) to love a painting called Golden Summer? Because if you want to romanticise that period in time and that place, which Streeton does even while he's living there, I mean, his letters there and soon after are already nostalgic for the moment he's in with the sense it's going to pass soon and he won't be able to relive this golden moment of making, painting, creating, being in that landscape. So I think Golden Summer, you know, it sparks all of us and thinking about Golden Summer, Sums in Australia, but of course, it's also an incredibly accomplished painting, and, and I think it's easy to forget too with these large sort of early impressionist works of Street and how worked they are. I mean, they look there's loose brushwork, which of course is something which he embraces as in painting in his painting, evident brushwork loosely applied paint but it's very worked up these are not paintings he's done quickly they're done on multiple settings looking at that subject thinking it through thinking about how the light the color interact on canvas how he can actually convey that scene so there's a lot of thought and a lot of work gone into them and they're statement pieces he's really declaring his vision for the landscape. And in Golden Summer, along still glides the stream, she'll forever glide, and spring, the three big wide format Heidelberg works, each delivers a manifesto in a sense of a varying vision of the same landscape. And all three of them, I think, are absolutely exceptional works from that period in Australian art and set the course for future directions.
0: And when we talk about Golden Summer, Eaglemont, one of the things that we've already mentioned is this gold and blue um, colour. Is that, was that something that, you know, became uh, synonymous with Streeton in a way? Yes,
1: it's an interesting question. The gold and blue palette becomes synonymous with Australian Impressionism. Most of the artists move to using this bright-toned golds, browns, shades of blue in the sky or the water when they come to Sydney... Um, but Streeton really does make it his own. He's certainly not the only artist using it, um, but it, it through a series of paintings from the late 1880s onwards of dry landscapes, summer landscapes, landscapes in regional New South Wales, landscapes in Heidelberg, And Seascapes in Sydney Harbour, he uses these saturated blues and saturated gold tones and he nuances them though. It's very easy to remember the brightest from those series, but there's many where he actually nuances the shades to uh, imply greater heat or more haze, overcast conditions, sunny conditions, etc. But it becomes a regular palette in his painting and one that we associate with him. Yeah. Uh, And it is also interestingly uh, in the late 1880s and there's a lot of discussion um, about what is Australian art, what are distinctive Australian subjects in art, uh, one of the current refrains at that time is that Australia should be embracing a brighter palette that reflects the brighter Australian light. So Sidney Dickinson, for instance, says uh, we should adopt a, a Latin palette, and by that, mean, by that he means Italy or France, rather than the Germanic palette, which would be darker, richer colours as being more suitable for our environment. So there's a convergence of reasons for it, um, but Streeton just manages it so well and with such brilliance throughout the 1890s as well.
0: Well, actually talking about this comparison with you know European traditions, one thing we haven't really explored is this idea of Impressionism and to what extent that has been adopted in Australia. Um, and in fact... Probably a good way to talk about that is that is this exhibition that that Tom Roberts conceived of uh, after the Heidelberg experience, which was called Nine by f- the Nine by Five exhibition, which is mainly works by Roberts, Streeton and Conder, and Nine by Five refers to the size of those works, so they're mostly nine by five inches. Can you tell me a bit about um, about that show and why it was so provocative and how impressionism ties in with that.
1: Yes. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I think it, it's it's a fascinating question as well. Uh, and you have Robert Street and Conder and other artists as well joining in to create this sort of the the first avant-garde artist organised exhibition in Australia, which is designed to provoke. There is no question. They're trying to stir up the arguments about their type of practice, uh, what constitutes an exhibitable painting, and what is impressionism. And I think, I think there's two things there to unpack. So the idea of what is Impressionism is really important um, because in Australia you couldn't see French Impressionist art They'd heard about the French Impressionists from reviews. I'm really not sure to what extent they'd even seen um, images of French Impressionist paintings by the late 1880s. And if they had, they would have been line engravings in black and white in art magazines. So they certainly had never seen anything colour. We're pretty sure Tom Roberts had seen Whistler's Notes, Harmonies, Nocturnes exhibition in London in the early 1880s. So... Tom Roberts has a sense of what's happening in Britain and works which are described as impressions rather than necessarily being impressionists. So I, there's multiple connections coming through. But what the artists know and what the critics know in Australia is that Impressionism is the most radical art movement. They know it's loosely painted. It's not about sort of highly finished brushworks. And they know it often involves plein air painting, like the Barbizon painters before. They also know it involves modern subjects, subjects of city life, of street scenes, railways, etc. So there's, there's knowledge of those things filtering through. Actual French Impressionist technique, not so much.
0: Which is the sort of, when we think of Monet or...
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think if French Impressionist technique, and if you wanted to define that, you go back to the French Impressionist and try and define it anyway, because Monet is not painting like Degas. It was not painting like
0: yeah, Guillemot. True, or true. the yeah.
1: other artists associated with it. So it's actually a very loose group mm-hmm. of Ways of painting mon and Bazaar are not painting the same way. So, but we associate, of course, with a bright palette. Uh, colour separated, applied side by side, what we call broken colour... Evident brush strokes, um, and you know, it a resistance to finish, what is known as sort of highly worked invisible brush strokes, and and you know, a realist subject matter or an imaginary subject matter, if you think of salon paintings of classical scenes, etc. So conveying a sense of um, time, of place, of atmosphere, and really working in a kind of expressionist way, like they are present in the works through being eyewitnesses to the scenes the painting it's not a studio construction there's the element of realism from the artist being there and that being part of the work as well so it happens around many places in the world it happens in scandinavia it happens in japan it happens in america france england australia artists converge and develop their own iterations of international Impressionism. It's not the same as French Impressionism, but it's following a similar trajectory of concerns. And What's interesting too around the world, it often converges with the rise in nationalism in the late 19th century as well, and people looking for painting in a way that conveys their own country. And if you think of painting your media environment or your immediate landscape, in this way which conveys how you have been present there as an eyewitness that then coincides with seeking distinctive local subject matter and national themes so and that happens in australia as well you get that convergence occurring with the 9 by 5 exhibition the artists, of course, are doing those things. They're painting landscapes, street scenes, things mm. they witness. Uh, the Melbourne critics, prior to that point, have actually been quite supportive of their practice, but they do get criticised for painting quickly, uh, for the lack of finish, it's a refrain which comes up again and again, which is why I'm using it. Um, and someone like James Smith, who's one of the leading critics, has been supportive, but he does begin to really question uh, their painting technique and really suggesting they need to work further at it. Um, And there's a bit of a catalyst in 1888 with the Melbourne Centennial Exhibition, where Australians exhibit alongside international artists for the first time, and Australians are criticised for being slapdash in their approach. So the following year, they mount this exhibition... (laughs) Which is, could not have been more deliberately slapdash.
0: Yeah, well, they. Well, I mean, I think they were considered like oil sketches that you would do in preparation for a larger yes. work, and you would never sh- exhibit something yes, like exactly. that. Yes, exactly,
1: and it's really interesting. I mean, I think the artists think of these as all sketches as well. I mean, I think they do. But in saying these are valid, you need to look at these. Um, Every batch is part of an artist in doing this, as I am in a big big, large-scale work, these are important. They're really pushing that argument. That's interesting because
0: these days on Instagram, everyone's showing their sketches.
1: (laughs) All the time. (laughs) And you have to think in the 1880s, that image circulation we take for granted now is is not happening. I mean, there are illustrated newspapers and, of course, works are reproduced in that, but how do artists take control of the reception of their own work? And in one way, organising this exhibition, I, I mean, it's... The stories are famous, of course, and this a space decorated with Japanese fans and cloths and the artists sort of building the story up beforehand. And journalists obviously have access while they're installing the works and, you know, throwing the paint around the frames and all of that. You know, in a sense, as Instagramers control their message to the world these days, that's what these guys are doing. If they'd been on Instagram, they would have been building this up for months <laughs> beforehand because it is, in a sense, about taking control of the message and putting it out there, stirring the pot. Of course the Conservatives throw their hands up and say this is the end of, the, you know, civilization as we know it more or less. Yeah, And yeah. then they, they pin <laughs> bad reviews to the door, you know, when you come in, as, as Whistler did back in with, with his exhibitions as well. That's so, a
0: great idea, isn't it?
1: You yeah, know? no, absolutely. It's like I'm... with
0: the trolls, you know, you just sort of repost what they wrote. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's the same thing.
0: <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's – and uh, that that shows a certain sort of uh, vivaciousness in a way in, in them, you know, in Roberts and Street. And they've got this sort of liveliness about them
1: and their work. Yeah, they're really gutsy. I mean, I think that they – they do believe in what they're doing and they're prepared to own it, put it out there and just push debates along, you know, challenge the establishment in Melbourne, which is only recently established. I mean, you know, but to move thinking and practice into what they're seeing as being its future. And also they genuinely, I think, feel this is a future for Australian art. This is how Australian art will not just be a reproduction of what's happening in Europe, that there's actually going to be a new vital local art movement
0: Now you were talking earlier about this sense of nationalism that was growing towards, and I think this is in the lead up to Federation, this was certainly the case in Australia. And I'm going to jump forward a little bit because Streeton did go to Sydney when Melbourne was sort of experiencing this depression. Yes. But he also um, ventured out a bit further to the Blue Mountains. And I think this was in response to to a a competition that was offered in the Art Gallery of New South Wales, which is a watercolour competition. Can you tell me a bit about that?
1: Yes, no, of course. The Street and first comes to Sydney in 1890 when the art gallery buys the big Heidelberg landscape still glides the stream. And he meets local artists, paints at Coogee, paints on the harbour. He's transfixed by the harbour, by the blue, blue water and by the ocean as well. So it's a very different experience from Melbourne. And he senses this opportunity here economically as well, because with the end of Melbourne's boom time economy, opportunities for artists shrink. Our trustees establish an acquisitive watercolour prize and it's for scenes of New South Wales scenery. And uh, the prizes, there's ten prizes of seventy-five pounds each, and the work is acquired for the gallery's collection. So, and that is a lot of money at the time.
0: Mm. It's like the Archibald, I suppose, like winning the
1: Archibald. It's like winning the Archibald. I mean, his big painting still glides the stream. The big oil had been bought for around the same price. So, mm. we, it's a real commitment. And so, comes back to Sydney, goes to the Blue Mountains, and you know, watercolor. He's been painting watercolor since he's young. It's not a natural medium for him. He tries really hard, he paints really accomplished watercolours, and he doesn't get any of the prizes. <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting because the, the works which were selected, uh, I would say, what's the right word? They're a little bit more conservative than oh, Street. Oh, okay. So, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, it's interesting because when he was in the Blue Mountains, one of his most famous paintings that would come out of that is not a view of the waterfalls and the mountains that we know that we love. It was Mm. actually... A view of a blasting of a tunnel. Can you tell me a bit about this amazing work, which, can I say as an aside, I always look at when I come to the gallery. I don't know what it is. It's called Fires On, and I always visit it when I come. Can you tell me a bit about that painting and how it came about?
1: What I think, look, Fires On is one of my all-time favourite paintings. It's a pleasure to work with it every day here at the Art Gallery, and I think it really is one of the great landscapes in Australian art. As you mentioned, it's unexpected. I mean, the Blue Mountains had been a popular place for painters for Decades by this stage, but most artists going up paint one of the very famous waterfalls or one of the great scenes across the gorges and valleys through the mountains, which are spectacular and are sublime. Streeton doesn't. I mean, he arrives at the Blue Mountains, he does a water car looking out across the plains back to Sydney, and then he becomes transfixed by the railway workers who are working where he is. So instead of painting looking out from the mountains he turns and looks into the mountains themselves so it's so unexpected for that time to see what is both a landscape but it looks into the matter of the land being blasted apart or this tunnels being built and that's where the title fires on comes from so that was the cry of the railway workers when they were about to light at uh, the gunpowder to blast the tunnel. So fires on meant get out of the way, mm. move, it's about to go up. He's, he does a watercolor for the competition first. He does a smaller watercolor sketches, but then he decides to do what he describes as a six foot coloury jam. So that's in the letter he writes at the time. So he decides to do what is his largest plein air landscape painting to date. And so he's up on a rocky perch with this giant canvas (laughs) strapped to the rocks, painting away in the sunshine, doing this painting. And, of course... One of the things is when those blasts happen, the rocks are flying around him as well. Like, it's, it's not a particularly safe place to be painting. Um, and I think what he captures in that painting is extraordinary because it's this view into the material of the landscape itself. The painting is very tall. The landscape where the low vantage point looking up at this rock face and you have untouched rock face on one side with all its rich depiction of the stone and the foliage above and the bright blue sky and that's kind of the left half of the painting the right half of the painting has the tunnel being blasted into the rock it has um, railway tracks coming out where the rock's been wheeled out in the watercolor but in the actual finished large scale painting what's being carried out is the body of one of the navvies working on site who was killed um, when he didn't get out of the way when one of the um, explosions happened and Streeton witnessed this and he was clearly shocked by it so the watercolour is the same scene but shows um, a trolley of rocks being carried out the big painting shows a body being carried out so not only is this extraordinary evocation of heat and light of land and matter paint this up tilted perspective, which is extraordinarily modern for its time, but actually shows an industrial incident as well. So but what's fascinating, when that painting was first exhibited in the eighteen nineties, not one review mentioned the body being carried out. They all talked about the heat, light, landscape. But not that subject. Isn't that interesting? Well it I mean, it is dwarfed by the landscape. Absolutely dwarfed it's 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 small figures within it, absolutely.
0: And it's all it almost sort of points to the insignificance of us in
1: the world. Yes, yes. And I think you're absolutely right. in the fact that sort of man interfering with this environment has actually led to a man's demise, you know. And I, I use I use man in a gender non specific way, <laughs> people I should say. <laughs> so they are men mining. It's like...
0: Well, yeah, that's interesting, and then also the other really. I think this is another reason I'm drawn to it when I come to gallery is and and something that Streeton does brilliantly in his work is depict figures in this just such a economical way. You know, a brush stroke, but it is a totally believable figure.
1: Yes, it is. It is, and it's interesting because Streeton never had a full studio painting education. He works his way around it. He becomes incredibly good at representing figures and people, as you say, in this really economical way a handful of brush strokes. You know, I don't think at that stage he can paint. A traditional studio portrait He does get better at it later on He does work at it But at this stage With simple economy He conveys humans Human movement Human presence And I think it's a real skill I think one of the other Interesting things about that painting Is that when it was shown People admire Stryhan's use of colour They admire the light that floods And thinks it's extraordinary But reviewers say The subject is modern Unpicturesque And if it wasn't for his skills As a colourist It wouldn't be a painting. So it's interesting for that subject, which to us looks like, you know, it is 130 years ago. To them, it was utterly contemporary. It wasn't nostalgic like some of Tom Roberts' paintings were at the time. It shows modern life and modern infrastructure being built to connect sydney with the region yeah so well i
0: suppose it be like us painting that crane that's right there exactly that's painting sydney modern
1: yeah. and um being <laughs> built right. cranes and sort of concrete <laughs> lids on motorways etc i mean it is yeah. a similar thing it'd it's be like true. us you know well like someone painting one of gladys's new motorways <laughs> that's right <laughs>
0: Now, can we move on to his sort of the next big phase of his life and that is leaving Australia and he actually went left in, I think, 1896 and he went to London to live and he would be there on and off for over 20 years. Can you tell me a bit about what that was like for him at first and um, generally, you know, how his career developed?
1: I think yeah, Streeton. I mean, Streeton joined the exodus from Australia uh, and from around the world actually. Do from other countries to the recognised art centres. Artists from around the world travel to London and Paris as being two of the key places where art is being made, and they want to engage with the practice they're seeing there, but also to compete. And it's often artists like Streeton who have had really considerable success at home. And they go with the sense that they can carry this with them. They want to learn, but yeah, they're a bit cocky as well. They think they're going to arrive and be able to establish themselves. And you have to think that Streeton achieved success very early on in Australia. And by the late 1890s, he's seen as one of our premier landscape painters. So 1888, 1889, he's seen as being full of potential. By the late 1890s, he's delivered that potential. So off he goes. When he arrives in London... He arrives, and not soon after he arrives, there's a very big exhibition of contemporary Australian art in London organised by the Art Caron New South Wales, which features a number of his paintings, including The Purple Noon's Transparent Might, His Great Hawkesbury River Landscape. That work is picked up on. It's reproduced in May art magazines. It's discussed, and it's highly praised. So, Sustreeton has arrived. His Australian works are being shown. There's critical... Sort of oxygen behind it And then he loses his way So he finds that I think he has a very Difficult time for the next few years So in a sense He struggles to paint the British landscape Which he writes to Tom Roberts about So the light is different The foliage is different The views are different And adapting his palette and style Both to the British landscape But also how he paints Is different from British painters And he loses confidence and he struggles to sell work because, yes, he is being exhibited, but so many other artists are as well. So getting traction there is very hard. And he actually gets um, – really struggles to pay his rent and even feed himself at times. So no,
0: That's interesting. And I think at that – around that time he had met Nora Clench, who would end up being his wife.
1: Yes, he meets her soon after he arrives.
0: Yes. I think he – I mean, from what I understand, he – Felt he wasn't in a financial position to propose.
1: Yes, yes. I think he may have felt he wasn't in a financial position to propose. And I think Nora certainly felt he wasn't in a financial <laughs> position well, to propose. Well, she was
0: a professional violinist, wasn't she? And she quite was
1: independent. Very independent um, and successful. So Nora Clench was Canadian born. She trained in Europe. Uh, she had her own all female quartet who played to around Europe. She played a private audience to Queen Victoria. So she was an independent, career-minded, uh, creative. So, and and here's this, you know, sort of, you know, a handsome, charming young Australian artist who can't actually pay his rent, so. <laughs> well,
0: I think she was getting commissions for him as well, I think through She some- did. She,
1: she used her contacts to assist him undoubtedly. Um, and Nora also came from a wealthy family in Canada as well. So, you know, she... Coming from a Canadian establishment family, who were well established in Canada by that stage, so yes, and, and Streeton, it, it's interesting. I mean, their engagement was announced as early, I think, as 1898 in the Australian press, but <laughs> <laughs> that seems to have been wishful thinking, and it was ten years until they actually were able to marry. So, yeah.
0: Well, tell me what changed his fortunes and what it was that made him financially. Uh, more successful.
1: Yes, Streeton coming... It did two things. He came back to Australia in 1906 into 1907, um, and he really set up a a model for exhibition practice which cemented his financial future. So he brought... British subject works with him, but as soon as he got back to Australia, he painted Australian subjects as well. And his Australian paintings from before he left for England had been selling very well in the early 1900s. So it was a finite group of works. He wasn't producing anymore. When they came on the market, they did well. So that was part of the incentive to come back. It was also obviously to see family, friends reconnect with Australia, which he did. But he went out, painted new Australian landscapes. He showed them side by side with British landscapes landscapes and this proved to be an incredibly successful model where people could see an Australian street and alongside an English street and and his shows did phenomenally well. People got paintings of home and away at the one show. So on that visit he held three exhibitions and generated a substantial amount of sales which enabled him to go back to Nora and say look I can support myself this is going to work. I think Nora was tired of waiting 10 years as well. <laughs> she, this guy had been around pestering her, so she gave in. <laughs> and then they went to Venice on their honeymoon, which was a working holiday for Streeton. There was no slacking. So he, was, he painted Venice on that visit, came back again later in the year in 1908 and painted Venice again, showed these works in England in 1909, and they were very well reviewed. So he set himself up against... Yeah, some of the great masters of English painting and European painting and actually triumphed. I mean, and Mm -hmm. it was so well reviewed that he printed the reviews in a publication he distributed in Australia when he sent Venetian Works back here to be shown in 1909 as well. So so Nora is also very good at business. Um, She has a natural business mind and street in realising that he cannot support Nora himself. And if they start a family with living this bohemian life he'd done previously, becomes business-minded as well.
0: Oh, that's, in, that's a long way from Heidelberg.
1: Long way from Heidelberg, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, he was criticised for that in his lifetime, but from this point in time, it looks like the professionalisation of practise. He was saying, what I do needs to be valued, it is worth something and you, as the market, needs to value it. And he would paint for the market at times as well, there's no question. But when you've got to live from it, oh, exactly. I don't think you can blame someone for that. No, so. exactly.
0: Well, it, that, that sort of idea is still something people are trying to shake off. Yes, absolutely. You and know?
1: I, yeah, I, absolutely. And I think, you know, if, I think Streen remained true to his vision but at times, you know, particularly later on, of course, he would um, paint quite quickly and, and paint the same subject and sometimes was addressing the market. But there's still the core of his vision there throughout.
0: Yeah. And then 1914 comes along and the, and the war, First World War um, starts. What was Streeton's view as to his role during that, during that time?
1: Yes, and interestingly, when the First World War began, Streeton was back in Australia. He'd come back to have more exhibitions and paint more Australian works. He was about to go back to England when the war was declared, and he couldn't get out of Australia for quite some months, so his return passage was cancelled. He eventually gets back and very soon after he gets involved in the war effort. So he's too old to go to the front and fight um, by that stage. Uh, But along with other artists from the Chelsea Arts Club, which he belongs to, uh, they all put their hand up for voluntary work and many of the artists get sent to the 3rd General Hospital in Wandsworth uh, where they participate in the war effort in various ways. So Streeton is working on the wards looking after um, a severe sick soldiers soldiers who have been shelled soldiers who have had um, been exposed to being gassed, soldiers with shell shock, etc. So he is working on the wards, which he does for a couple of years. He works very long hours.
0: So it's actually dressing wounds and all that sort of thing. All
1: sorts of very direct things, absolutely, dressing wounds, trying to cheer up the soldiers, organising art exhibitions as well, um, which he sees as being therapeutic for the soldiers and Mm. um, and involving his artist friends and that, and some of those are fundraisers also. But after a couple of years, he's so worn down as health deteriorates and he has to leave and stop working at the hospital and he gets a war medal for it and he's lobbying the Australian government for a war artist scheme as well so um and it's a bit controversial because the Australian government's he's invited by the Canadians actually and he says no I want to wait for the Australian scheme Australian scheme starts Streeton's not asked with the first artist he pays out on the artists who are because he does a habit habit (laughs) of firing off letters
0: so is this the official war artist war scheme? Artist scheme. Oh, so it, it starts then?
1: Yeah, it happens quite late in the war um, and Streeton's not in the first group invited. He is in the second group.
0: Oh, right. Oh, so he's a bit put out.
1: He's a bit put out and he fires off letters criticising people, which he has to retract. <laughs> he, he can be very intemperate when he fires letters off to the press every so often. So, um, but he is appointed and he does two tours on the Western Front in 1918. So it's at the key battles that really sort of um, resolved the war. So he's in the at the Somme during that time um, and he is really engaged with it. He paints sketches, sketches, watercolours, paintings and does many more than what he has to do to fulfil his commitment to being a war artist, his commission. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So ultimately Nora and Arthur and their son, they've, they have a son by then, they return to Australia. What was that period of his life like? Was he still painting as much as he did before? What, what sort of things was he concerned with?
1: Yes, it's, it is interesting. And I think and I mean, he's lived through the First World War in England, and that has been a devastating experience. There's no question um, for everyone involved. Uh, so at the end of the war, he comes back to Australia as soon as he can afterwards. But he doesn't return to live. He returns for another visit to reconnect with Australia. He brings quite a large group of war paintings with him, and he exhibits those alongside earlier Australian landscapes. So he's bought back Golden Summer from the family of the collector who'd had it in England, uh, and he has a handful of earlier Australian works. So he shows them with the wall paintings, and I think this is very interesting in 1920 because he's kind of connecting what's happened in Europe with images of Australia. So he's making our Australian experience in the war quite a direct connection by showing these works together. And some of his war works do use a language familiar from his Australian subjects, elevated views, looking across landscapes with rivers unfolding. Um, But instead of a a flock of magpies flying, there may be balloons which have been shot down, dropping from the sky. So it, it is really interesting how he does that. And I do think it's conscious. So showing those in Australia together, he's establishing a connection with his great Australian landscapes, with his war landscapes and getting a sense of what Australia is like after the war. And I think he really sees that there is a future here he wants to participate in. I think he feels he's probably done everything he can in London. You know, he has a moderate reputation. He does show his works are selling, but not as much as they are in Australia. And he wants to return with Nora and his young son, Oliver. So they're here for a period of time. They travel back to Europe via Canada It's quite peripatetic how they get back and then come back to Australia and settle here permanently in 1923. Um, So I think that return is really important to him. He's consciously decided to give up that English life and participate in Australia and how old Australia will be into the future. Um, And when he comes back, he really paints... He's painted these long-view landscapes since the 1880s, but he goes higher up when he comes back. (laughs) (laughs) He's really up a mountains (laughs) doing these Big view vistas, yeah. um, which are magnificent and are loved, and they really become, you know, a way that Australia sees itself during this time. And these pastoral landscapes, you know, landscapes which show a combination of natural bush, natural environments, but also sort of settled landscapes involved in them as well. Yeah. So
0: well, there's, all, and he also bought a property outside of Melbourne in the in Linda, which is in the Dandenong Ranges, and he. I mean, he must have felt a great affinity to nature anyway before that. But I mean, living in that environment, he became quite an environmentalist.
1: Yes, he did. So it was on the nineteen that visit, nineteen twenty twenty one. He bought five acres at Alinda in the Dandenong Ranges. Um, And he was passionate about that landscape from that moment. When he resells Golden Summer, he actually gets enough money from that in 925 to build a house at Alinda. And it's the first house he's actually paid for himself. The previous houses have been paid for by Nora. So I think it marks his independence as well and really being able to provide for his family. But he's passionate about this landscape and he would spend as much time there as he could. And then when he bought that property in 1921, there was still... um, messmate gums on it. So the very grand eucalypt tree which dominated that landscape prior to colonization are being cut down in the nineteenth century. There were messmate gums there in nineteen twenty one. By the end of the decade they've all gone. And this is one of the catalysts to stream in becoming an environmental mm-hmm. activist. He's concerned about urban planning and wanting good urban planning, and he's really concerned about old-growth forests being cut down in Victoria in particular. And he campaigns to save them. So, Wow.
0: That's a it, very modern
1: thing, isn't it? A very modern thing to do. And, and it, there is a growing awareness of the importance of these landscapes during that period, but he's really at the forefront of it. So... And I think it's interesting. I mean, his pastoral landscapes at times is quite, you know, from this point in time, uncomfortably nationalistic rhetoric grows about around those works, not necessarily being promoted by street. And I'm unsure from this point in time whether he embraced it or not. I mean, possibly he did. You know, it, it's, it's a particular language which is, um, you know, a little uncomfortable from this point in time. On the other hand, he's out there campaigning to save the landscape he's painting, and he actually moves from painting these great pastoral paintings to painting protest paintings, paintings of landscapes called Our Vanishing Forest, the last of the messmate gums, to the very end of his career, painting paintings which project what Australia will look like in the year 2000 if we don't stop doing what we're doing. And he shows Australia as a desert with dead bodies, uh, dead animals in it, um, dead trees, it, it, a wasteland. So they're prophetic paintings and we're still having that conversation a hundred years on.
0: And we could probably speak for like hours longer because there's there's a whole lot of other sort of works that he did. He did paintings, as you mentioned, in Venice, but also Cairo. He had a, a number of symbolist paintings that he did as well. So in this show... Can we expect to see something from all these different periods of his life?
1: Yes, in the exhibition uh, we have some of his earliest works, life drawings from the mid-1880s, which are very accomplished, all the way through to some of his last paintings in the late 1930s, early 1940s. But we touch on every part of his career, Uh, and that was very deliberate. Uh, Not only a very rich collection of some of his most well-known Australian works, some lesser-known Australian works, but a very rich representation of his paintings in Cairo, in London, in France. Uh, When he comes back to Australia, his paintings of Sydney from the 1890s all the way through to late 1920s. 20s, and his still life in garden paintings, because not only does he paint the big landscapes out there in the world, he paints a very intimate landscape around him at home. And I think for a committed plein air painter, in a sense, uh, when it gets harder to travel out further away, you can travel into your garden. Yeah. So, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I think, you know, it's really important to them, that sort of that natural environment around them as well. So, and the exhibition does have works which have not been seen publicly for over 100 years, uh, and I think that will be a great pleasure as well. I hope for people coming to see it.
0: Oh, definitely.
1: Seeing the richness and breadth of his practice.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me today, Wayne, to talk about this exhibition, which sounds like it is going
1: to be a blockbuster. Well, I certainly hope so. Listeners, come in. Viewers, come and see this exhibition. It'll be a pleasure to welcome you to the gallery.
0: What a wealth of knowledge on all things Streeton. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Wayne Tunnicliffe as much as I did. As I mentioned earlier, the show opens on 7 November 2020 and it runs until 14th of February 2021. Also on at the Art Gallery of New South Wales is the Archibald Wynne and Sulman Prizes, which the gallery managed to make happen despite COVID. And this year, the winner of the Archibald was Vincent Namajira, the first Indigenous artist to win the prize with his great painting of Adam Goods. Congratulations also to Indigenous artists Hubert Parulcha and Marikit Santiago, who won the Wynne and Sulman. There are 22 works hanging in the exhibition by podcast guests and I'll be doing a video soon showing you those paintings in the gallery, so I'll keep you posted about when that will be on the Talking With Painters YouTube channel, which by the way has loads of videos of my podcast guests, over 100 videos now. To get there, just search Talking With Painters on YouTube. If this is the first time you're listening to the podcast, um, you can follow the podcast on social media, on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed on Apple Podcast. It's really great to read the lovely feedback. Thanks for listening today and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking With Painters.
1: It is Streeton's ability with composition and conveying form with paint, texture, and colour and the effect of light and atmosphere. It's all those things coming together. It's hard to break it down into the elements which make it so great, but boy does it work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it exactly. is sensational. <laughs>